New England Public Radio, in association with the Sterling and Francine Clark Art Institute, present a conversation with Michael Conforti, the former Felda and Dana Hartman director of the Clark Institute, and John Hockenberry, host of The Takeaway from WNYC and Public Radio International. In this intimate one-hour conversation, Michael Conforti discusses his tenure at the Clark and his influence on the museum world. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Martin Miller, CEO and General Manager of New England Public Radio. And we're thrilled to join with the Clark today for this special conversation. Michael Conforti is an icon among the museum world, and he will soon step down as director here after more than two decades. He has led the Clark in establishing a worldwide reputation as an international forum for the generation discussion and dissemination of ideas surrounding art and visual culture. Michael is a graduate of Trinity College in Hartford and began his career at Sotheby's in London. He subsequently received his master's and PhD in art history from Harvard. Previous to the Clark, Michael's, Mike, Michael was chief curator of decorative arts and sculpture at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts and curator of sculpture and decorative arts at the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco. John Hockenberry is one of our most celebrated American journalists today. He currently is the host of WNYC and Public Radio International's program, The Takeaway. It airs uh, Monday through Friday and on the NEPR News Network. You can hear it at 11 a.m. five days a week. We're thrilled to have him here and have that program on our network. He is a three-time Peabody Award winner and four-time Emmy winner for his work on Dateline NBC. He is the author of several books and has written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post. John attended the University of Chicago and the University of Oregon. And perhaps one of the most interesting things, and as a father of two, I find this extremely interesting and challenging, he's the father of five, which includes two sets of twins. I'm tired just thinking about that, John. Um, if you would turn off your devices, we're recording this. Uh, you'll be able to hear it at NEPR.net, so please turn those off. And it, we'll have some time at the end, we think, for some questions, so uh, we'll take a couple of questions at the end. So right now, Michael Conforti and John Hockenberry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, and uh, Michael, it's a thrill to be here with great. you. Thanks for coming to the Clark. Um, it, it's so great to be in the Berkshires. We've had a home here, my wife and I, and, and that crew that you heard about a moment ago, uh, since uh, the early 90s, and uh, we live down in the southern county in Egremont, and so we're familiar with this part of the world, and there's a, a, a combination of, I think, uh, emotional intelligence and, and down-to-earth, um, just down-home America that is evidenced by, you know, Peabody's, you know, Emmys, blah, 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 two sets of twins. Oh, my goodness, you know, that's the thing that really matters. You could just get rid of all the rest in the introduction and just say two sets of twins and, and uh, a little five-year-old who's uh, busy riding his bike. The milestone of the summer for us is that he learned how to ride his bike uh, last weekend, and uh, so now we're... We're buying Band-Aids, <laughs> we're doing mostly. Um, anyway, it's a thrill to be here because this institution is so celebrated. It's a, it's a thrill to be here because public radio has a um, ethos of community outreach and, and understanding that the institution is the people and the institution is the voices, it is the participation, it is the collective uh, interest and emotional energy of uh, people collaborating to do something that they believe is important. And uh, I think Michael's vision here at the Clark has uh, typified and, uh, you know, in many ways uh, exemplified that vision. And of course, in these kinds of visions that imagine a handshake and uh, an embrace with, with an audience, it is the audience that comes to drive that vision, and that is sort of the, mir the miracle. And, and as public radio has been driven by its audience that frequently prods the institution into doing things that it might not have thought of by itself, 
um, the interest and the passion of people for art uh, emboldens an institution like this to do things that uh, might have seemed too bold at uh, a board meeting perhaps, but uh, you know that you have uh, a group like this behind you, you can do anything. And I think that's what we're here to celebrate today. Uh, Michael, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your first I experience in a museum as a youngster. That's a good one. Uh, I grew up near um, the Addison Gallery of American Art in Andover, Massachusetts, in a town called Bradford near Haverhill. And um, I remember at 16 going to the director at that moment and you know, stuttering as I did then and still do, um, uh, at 16 in his office asking him for an internship. I knew somehow, and don't ask me how, I wanted to work in an art museum. Um, and, uh, and he was so nice to me. I think that that image of Bartlett Hayes being nice to me at 16 has sort of inspired me over the years. And I've tried always. In fact, I just did an email to Banyi Wang from Beijing, who's the, our, um, our, we are host family for a, an undergraduate from, from Beijing, who's uh, an intern of the Whitney at the moment, giving her advice on her application for an internship at the Guggenheim next year, da 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 I mean, I, I, that, that, that meant a lot to me at that moment in time. I try to be that person for, for younger people now. What was it in the um, Addison that uh, inspired you? Was it the quality of the space? Was it the quality of the collection? Was it the, the they had these big sofas where you sat down and looked at, <laughs> and you looked at great Winslow Homers. Very interesting that there is some wonderful Homer. You're asking me good questions because I haven't thought about this a lot. Um, the Clark is an incredible uh, Homer collection. I did a, my first undergraduate paper on Winslow Homer, and I remember sitting in those sofas looking at Winslow Homer's. Uh, at the Addison Gallery, some of which were given by Stephen Clark, as it happened, who is uh, Sterling Clark's brother, but, but I certainly didn't know that at the time. But no, great, great works of art, comfortable setting, um, and, and a welcoming atmosphere. And that's moved us, I think, from, moved me from, from that moment to now. The history of this institution, or certainly the, the history of the collections of the Clarks, is a history of competing visions that uh, settled into this place um, more or less comfortably. Um, in any institution, there are competing visions. How did you see those visions either settled or ready for transformation, ready for new experimentation when you arrived in the beginning? slightly rephrase that, in relationship to the history of the institution. Indeed, there were the competing visions of the two Clark brothers, which actually had very little to do with this institution itself. But they, it, 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 was, it, it's a, it was a fun exercise in the mid-2000s to bring together the two visions in a great show uh, that was here and, and at the Metropolitan Museum, the Clark brothers collect, where you actually saw two brothers who never got along actually get committed to art and do things in very different ways. So there's that level of competing it was vision. the first uh, <laughs> art smackdown exhibit, I think. <laughs> it was fun. I mean, I knew it would be good. What, what we used it for, and a lot, of people in, a lot of people know about this, we used it as an opportunity to bring the two wings of the Clark family together again. And indeed, there was a CBS a Sunday morning segment, which I love, 2007, when um, uh, um, Javert Ray, the, uh, the granddaughter of Francine Clark, met for the first time Jane Clark, who was the granddaughter of Stephen Clark, and, the, and there was a sto family story around that. They had never seen each other before, and they, they had only heard bad things about most of the family. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, but Jane Clark, who was... Uh, who was you want to uh, try Syria or North Korea? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... <laughs> Uh, Jane Clark has been a supporter of ours uh, since, but you know, be that as it may, we, we, we brought the two sides uh, together, and Jane now realizes there were some uh, unusual personalities in the Clark family past, but, but it's time to forget about it. And she's both supported us and supported you know, Clark family activities here in, in Cooperstown in New York as well as here. So anyway, that, that, that's one kind of uh, competing vision. Uh, then there's... Um, you know, I, I'm not sure there was a competing vision when uh, uh, my vision against the the original vision of Sterling Clark. I think he he wanted his collection in a special location. He cared very little about museums. He would have hated me because he didn't like museum curators or directors. He just liked 
he, he liked museum um, art dealers, and he liked great objects, and he liked his collection. And, ba and basically, he was at a point in life where he realized he had to do something about the collection, he liked the collection. I'm not sure he cared that much about museums. Um, he certainly didn't like press. He didn't invite any of them to the opening. He was very much a quiet person. Um, but on the other hand, being advised by good lawyers, and, and probably with a, a, a will beyond what one could identify in, in the, the letters where he doesn't look so generous, he, he, uh, the lawyer said, Mr. Clark, uh, establish your place, leave it open-ended, uh, don't do, they didn't say it uh, specifically, but, um, but they could have said, don't do like Albert uh, Barnes did, or Mrs. Gardner, or um, frickin' keep, keep things from happening in a different way in the future, and he didn't. I'm not sure he wouldn't have, but he didn't. <laughs> and of course, we, we then uh, developed in, into a very different kind of institution, but still based on that core, uh, core collection. So, uh, so is that a competing vision? No, it's, it's a, a vision of one man who establishes a place in a town and then not in competition, but in uh, recognition that that, that that institution will evolve over time, uh, allowing it to. Uh, I think one, Wags could say that the current Clark is in competition to what his original vision was. But I don't think, I, I think if he, if he were around now, he'd be quite happy. Certainly his granddaughter, who was here for the, the 60th um, anniversary, said, he would be really happy. So he was, she was kind of reassuring the community in case there were any questions uh, that his, her grandfather would have been happy. We, we assume he would. Isn't it curious um, how when you have a situation like the Fricks and the Gardners and the Barneses, and you have then a long historical you know, uh, time frame to deal with, that it's sometimes more difficult to appreciate the original vision when it comes with these rules and strictures that it's not to be changed, whereas here, when it's open-ended, you very naturally come back and embrace the original uh, sort of personal notions of what Sterling Clark had in mind, and, and it's all very, very natural, and it comes with none of the anxiety that's associated with, you know, things that have happened at the Guggenheim, certainly what the Frick is going through now. Yeah. In a sense, it's also a choice on our part. I mean, we there were no there were no rules keeping us from from keeping the spirit of Mr. Clark's collection in place as it is in that building. I mean, clearly, one out of every four or five things have come since Sterling Clark uh, passed away. We've bought many works of art over time. People have given us works of art, but but there's still the spirit of the personal collection that we try to enhance, and that that's something that um, you could question. We. And, and we have questioned, but we often talk about it in our, our classes uh, here, here at Williams and the Williams College uh, graduate program in history of art, which is done with, with the Clark, uh, that, that there is value in maintaining the spirit of an original collection uh, in spite of the fact that, that, that things have changed. The public actually likes it. They like, they like controlled museological environments because there are so many that are so large. And there, there are so many organizations so large and so so disparate. I think people have an appreciation for those places that are, are, are private and, um, and specialized. I, I, I say that uh, also because the, I think the curators have bought very much in the spirit of, of the Clarks. Clark enhanced, if you will, expanding the envelope but not challenging it wildly. And we, we had an interesting notion of it a moment ago uh, when we had a Bierstadt painting here which we had gotten on loan from the Seattle Art Museum. Vicki Saltzman, my colleague, cleverly had worked with the uh, Seattle Art Museum too, uh, in a wager at the time of the Super Bowl. Yes, Super I Bowl. And uh, if, if, the, if the Seahawks had won the Super Bowl, we would have sent an over, a Homer over to Seattle with the, um, uh, with the New England Patriots winning the Super Bowl. We got a great Bierstadt. And I will say that Bierstadt, a wonderful painting of, of Puget Sound brought into our place, looked very odd big scale, very grand in a sense, and not Mr. Clark's taste. I say it because you, you, you walk through the building now, and while you may not be conscious that it's a personal taste, you realize when something is, comes in that really wasn't uh, part of their, uh, their vision originally or their vision expanded by our curators, it looks odd. So there is a quality of, of specialness of the personality of the collection. But you won uh, the wager. We won the wager. Which is all that matters. <laughs>
but we got uh, it here. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, let's talk just a bit about your experience. Um, what was it like in Minneapolis when you're at an institution that is very much, uh, you know, maybe the second, not the first institution in Minneapolis. Uh, the, the museum that you were at in Minneapolis is not the Walker. And at the time, there you know, was some sort of relationship between the two. Um, as, a, uh, as someone who has to deal with an audience for art, and in Minneapolis is a very active and enthusiastic uh, audience for, for art of all kinds and music, um, how do you sort out the identity of your institution versus the institution of the other big museum? Yeah. There, there. Yeah. Well, listen, we won't do it. I, I can do Clark history. I can do American Museum history. I can definitely do Minneapolis institutional history. I was brought on a panel there the other day, last week, last month, because it was the 100th anniversary of the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. Um, and uh, uh, I won't bore the audience here with every little detail, but there is a... Um, uh, I think I, I, one thing I would say that would be a simple thing to say rather than getting into the specificity of that history, um, many institutions in, in communities compete. <laughs> in New York they compete in Dade. Uh, in Minneapolis, while it's a very cooperative community as you cite, uh, in, institutions still compete for audience and for funds. Uh, I think one of the values of the Berkshires, if we could uh, and uh, talk about it, because certainly, certainly the listening audience uh, uh, many of them, if, if not from the Berkshires, at least know the Berkshires well, is that we don't actually compete. <laughs> we, we see ourselves, uh, the Norman Rockwell, Massimoco, the College Museum, and all the cultural organizations as, um, as cooperative uh, cultural ventures to bring both people and money from the outside in. So we're so unusual in that um, many institutions are looking at their own communities, urban communities, Midwestern, Far Western, and dividing up uh, the people and the resources within that community. We ha you can't divide up the Berkshires because there's hardly anything here in terms of economic um, infrastructure or, or numbers of people. There's only 135,000 people within an hour's drive of, uh, of our, our museum. So, um, so our, our goal is to cooperate and, and collectively engage the rest of the world. And, uh, and it's a really extraordinary story because the, the cultural infrastructure of the Berkshires is is quite unbelievable, from Jacob's Pillow to Tanglewood to Norman Walker, Hancock's, Mass Mocha, all, all the theater festivals. Uh, and that comes from cooperation and cooperative marketing. We were looking <laughs> the other day, um, uh, we're, we're seeing a very um, uh, positive summer here, here in the Berkshires. And, every, and there are people who want to say, well, it's because of the theaters. It's because Barrington Stage is doing this. Because the Van Gogh is at the Clark. Well, it's never because of any one thing. <laughs> and we're all working together, either consciously or unconsciously. We're part of the, uh, the sort of external ether. People are aware that there's a lot going on here, and they're coming here. And it's a very, very, very good summer. But that doesn't happen in the communities in the you know, Midwest and Far West. I mean, it's very Parisian well, yeah, in the sense that there's, there's this immersion into all of the arts here, and that people may come here to think of it as a special place, but it, in many ways it, it replicates an experience that this collection very much comes out of, the sort of Parisian-European idea, something that, that Whistler was interested in, in just getting more of and sort of, you know, bathing in, because he had some frustrations in America and oddly enough went over to Europe and became this uh, American painting icon. So I like the, I like the idea of Paris. I never thought about that. Yeah, well, it, I mean, is that I, where we are? Well, the, the idea, yeah, <laughs> we're definitely not in Paris, but uh, uh, but but there is a sense of no categories but an artistic experience that is yeah. everywhere at once that is unique yeah. here. No, it, it it is unique and um it's interesting to think about Paris because uh, when you, I was there f a few weeks ago, I was there on a rainy day, sun Sunday, uh, I had to stand in line at so many institutions to get in. Vuitton was so happy I had my ICOM card that allowed me to get beyond the line. Would, the people were standing in the rain, they were standing in the rain at the Corbusier show at Pompidou. They're, they're, because of the international nature of the city and because of the variation and, and the sophistication of the community and, and the many offerings, um, 
It's a very powerful uh, exhibition culture. Um, and that, for me, the Berkshire's a little bit different. I place it um, in the context of like the Edinburgh Festival or Bayreuth or Salzburg or whatever. Mm -hmm. but, but what's different about those r more rural <laughs> European uh, cultural centers is that we do have more, uh, a, a wider variety of things. And, uh, and Frank, when, when, when we've thought about it, we, we have said that we cannot think of another place in the world that has so many nationally and internationally known um, uh, performing arts and arts organizations all within one area. And I think the variety is what makes us so unusual. I mean, you, do, you, can't, you, know, you can't be Bayreuth for opera or Salzburg for certain kinds of music. But the Berkshires has a, ver a variety of things that, that other places don't have. So that makes it unique in the world. Now, I, I would ask the, the, um, the listening audience to challenge me on that, because I actually would love to know of another place uh, that has that level of variety that's in a kind of rural site around the world. The 20 years um, that you've been here at the Clark have seen amazing developments in the art world and the museum world and the exhibition world, but also, I think, in certain communities around the world, and if we could start to see hints of a global community of art experience, um, a lot of really amazing milestone moments, Bilbao, um, I mean, you can take Bilbao, you can take the High Line, for instance, down in, in New York City, um, the Whitney just opening, um, all, all kinds of things that suggest that the, the young generation, or what's being passed to this young generation, is being appreciated and is being appreciated not simply as a gift but as a kind of an intuitive sense of yeah that's exactly what turns us on um, you see the lines in the rain at the moma and uh, you really have a yeah. feeling that things are alive and well i think so um i get angry at people who who are angry at moma at the moment because they think moma has changed too much and the lines drive them crazy and they wish that it was like the yeah. moma of the past um i think in the 20 years that i've been around with head of the car can before we have certainly seen uh, a new level of cultural tourism around the world and I think the the wags would say that that cultural tourism is not necessarily a good thing that it's actually spoiling institutions it's only about bringing people in it's only about and pe people are not looking hard enough my my friends who will sort of denigrate the visitors experience at the MoMA will talk about how little they're staring at odd but, but as opposed to staring at people and there's certainly no question that we've become more more social spaces around the world but I, I, I'm I'm not one to find that entirely negative I think the museum has adapted to be both a social uh, a social forum uh, a center for engagement as well as a place for for people to experience the cultural treasures of times past. Now, what's, what's curious to me about global, though, is that we, we still are at, at a moment when, uh, when we have uh, a, a collective responsibility to our shared cultural assets, but we don't know quite how to deal with it. <laughs> uh, at the moment, and this is not about museums, it's more about uh, cultural patrimony. We're walking, watching horrible things happen in the Middle East with ISIS. Uh, I'm happy to say that the, uh, the Association of Art Museum Directors is currently um, uh, working with the U.S. government to try to create uh, U.S. museums as safe havens for objects from Syria that, that, that are being exported illegally. And things like that. A variety of things have happened. I think the, the shared cultural patrimony is in danger uh, at a time when uh, museums are sometimes questioned for their authority because they've had moments in times past where they have been, um, they've acquired objects which some, some, some nations feel as uh, illegal. So, so there's a, it, it is complicated. In the world of the global, truly global, it's a bit, a bit complicated. Uh, and and it, it'll be interesting to watch as the next uh, decades go on where, where museums will actually go in terms of common stewardship as opposed to ownership. Um, how museums in the West and uh, U.S. and Europe can again be trusted by, uh, by source countries, which they have not been in the last uh, decade or two. That's a somewhat complicated answer to your, uh, your question of, of global, but, um, but the, the effect of Bilbao is not the only thing <laughs> that we should look at as we think about the internationalization of art. And uh, the Morgan um, in, in New York is a is, you know, is a church of Morgan's particular taste. He just wanted to get the stuff that was the rarest. And mm -hmm. 
in many ways he's the you know example of the of the cultural tourist of, of someone who didn't know so much about these things but went to get the thing that no one else could buy um, and you know you can go to the Emirates and, and see a lot of that going on uh, in our day you know right next door to places where things are being destroyed like in Syria and uh, not so far away in, in Afghanistan um, do you think there is a a responsibility of museums to, because you, you notice it here at the, in the Whistler exhibit, that if you look at the uh, uh, press about uh, the mom traveling the United States in the 30s, there was so much talk about how much it cost and less of a concern of what it means and what it means to America and what the sort of American ethos of art and the European ethos of art actually meant as this kind of churning of, of, uh, of art ideas. Um, is it a responsibility of museum curators to restore the meaning of objects that have a, a, a fabulous uh, kind of rarity to them? And a lot of the you know, things from the uh, Archimenids and, and Iraq and, and Syria and the, the biblical places in Syria have that, but to, re to, to restore them as art as opposed to pure, rare stuff from the past that's so valuable and therefore be uh, traded? It's a rich question. Uh, you know, first, I'm going to deal with the, the part of your question or part of your um, uh, observations that relate to uh, the monetization of art in the art market. I think, I think you're absolutely right. What, what Morgan uh, uh, did is being, being du duplicated in other, other organizations, uh, other countries now, the, the Altanis in, 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 uh, in, in Qatar being the greatest example of an ambition to collect the best and put it in institutions, and there, there is parallel. There, there, there is the the world of the markets, and and, and it changes. It, it changes and it doesn't change. It just evolves from from one place to to, to another. But but the more important question was uh, the the one you raise is uh, the question of meaning. And there is there are meaning and the, there are meanings in objects. <laughs> you um, it is the curator's responsibility to to try to. S sort out the various meanings. Meaning is actually lost over time. And one of the other functions of, of a curator is to accept that the recontextualization of objects and the different meanings that it has over objects is also part of the history of the object. Uh, so that you, 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 you can't go back exactly to what an object meant uh, originally when you've seen it in so many different places, in a private collection for X period of times, now in an institutional locale where it's looked on as, as an aesthetic object or as, par as opposed to part of a, a, a sculptural piece of architecture or part of an original altarpiece or whatever it might do. So the curator has a, a, a many-folded responsibility to both talk about artist and object in, in its purest sense, but also uh, try to describe, search out to, to the, the many meetings of, of, of that object in times past, as we also try to allow people to have their own meanings in our own time. Uh, I think one of the, the important uh, functions, if we can do it, is to encourage people to enjoy art on, on its own terms, whatever meaning they may choose to bring to it, and, and make that, make people feel good about that. The, uh, the, the point um, of, of the original, of the question, and, and you answered it very well, but just to extend upon that, this idea of patrimony, this idea that it all belongs to us and that it, it, it is a, an act of pillage to extract it from that patrimony in some sense, not to give it only one meaning associated with 3000 BC, but, but to extract it from the patrimony and turn it into a kind of commodified uh, you know, item for, you know, for, for curating in one's den in, in some palace that you're building. Um, I think uh, it, uh, for instance, there's a feedback loop with art that, that could be valuable in times of, of stress, political stress. For instance, do you think that if uh, the Elgin marbles had been permitted to have more of a context than simply a kind of British predatory, um, uh, you know, we went over and got that uh, in there, Victorian period, that the, the crisis in the euro right now might be more easily resolved in the sense that people would have a more natural sympathy for what is Greek and what are the, the ideas of, of uh, and, and the, the misery of, of what's going on in, in uh, Greece than, than there, 
there might have been. You, you have great questions. I think this is a good one. I love the Greek, the Greek and the elegant marbles. I mean, they're two. For me, uh, you know, I have a lot of Italian ties, and um, for me, uh, Italy uh, is Greece, but with um, you know, north, uh, northern Italy and its uh, industrial infrastructure, keeping it from truly being Greece. Uh, all, all the attitudes are the same, but there is is industry in. Um, in northern Italy that keeps it from having the, uh, the strain of Greece as we know it. So for me, I don't link the Elgin marbles to Greece. But I do think the whole issue of the marbles in terms of Greek pride is something we're actually seeing in, in the, uh, the political uh, brouhaha of, of voting yes, vote, voting no, and the rest. Greece has an enormous pride, and the Elgin marbles has been a symbol of that since you know Melina McCurry pushed it in the eight, in in the from the 1970s. Um, uh, for me, um, whether the object should go back or not uh, is not something I'm going to say on public radio in terms of my, my own opinion. But I will say many of my students have decreed on this in papers. It's a favorite topic for uh, for student papers, uh, and when one goes into it, you know, just so you know. Um, uh, the Greeks were run by the Turks. The Turks gave them permission to take it away oh, in the early, early part of the 1900s, blah, 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 blah. And it was, a, you know, so illegal or unlegal, illegal. Uh, they, they were installed in the middle of the 19th century. They've really become part of museological culture. Um, and there's a question as to whether just going back to be near the Parthenon in, a, in, in an institution is any better than, than maintaining it in the kind of uh, aestheticized environment of the, the British Museum, and, and one, and you know, colleagues of mine have, of mine and I have, you know, argued that one over time. I think w the issue of it being near the Parthenon is the issue that uh, that links it to uh, voting yes or no, read the Euro. I mean, it's it's about Greek pride and not about um, real, you know, rationality because there is no going back. They are no longer part of the Parthenon per se, and whether they're in next to it or in Britain doesn't actually make uh, for the world at large the, that much of a difference. Now, I would imagine there are people who wouldn't agree with that, but um, that happens to be my uh, my view. Well, there, there's um, certainly plenty of history for the Greeks that, uh, you know, comes after the uh, 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 marbles, um, that's for sure, which they would wish, I think, the media would evoke from time to time rather than constantly, you know, handing them dishes of Plato to eat, you know, along with their uh, euros. And so I, I think in some, in some sense, it would be great, though, and this is not to take a position on the Elgin marbles, but it, it would be great if both sides could represent, could understand the marbles and that particular art object, and we could choose any to talk about as Europe's pride or well, humans' artistic I, pride, as opposed to a particular nationalistic. Place. Yeah, and I would say that you know the Elgin marbles is the um, uh, you know the poster child for an issue that's actually everywhere in, right. in the world today. This is it's it's an early one. It's a high. It's a, it's an icon. It's a great example. Everybody knows the history. A lot of people know the history, but this uh, the the issue of local governments, tribal uh, tribes, and small scale governments wanting control of of, uh, of patrimony is very powerful in our time, and it's the thing that we have both um, we we deal with and we avoid. Uh, I think we should be addressing it much more aggressively on the part of the international museum world, we sometimes don't because it's just too tough. And, uh, and, and institutions who have objects within their, their purview, they so-called own them, uh, US and Europe, just don't want to get involved in the conversations because the conversations are so fraught. But, um, but the Elgin marbles, as I say, is a symbol for um, an issue that I think is probably a, the most important issue in terms of um, cultural oversight of the next generation. What, what are we, how are we to, to look at objects both below the ground, above the ground, now above the ground, whose are they? Can, can we share them on a loan basis, long-term loan basis, and not get so fraught with the actual location of where they are? C can they be uh, collectively owned in some fashion? That, that's our challenge. I, it, it will it will take time, however. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about this beautiful day here. And uh, how much joy have you gotten in seeing the ways in which people this summer have enjoyed the outdoors and the indoors here at the Clark? And how, as a curator, you can begin to see that unifying in uh, in, in a sort of collective notion of what the Clark is all about: art, nature, 
I mean, we certainly with the Van Gogh and the yeah. nature, uh, you know, you, you see that very powerfully expressed. Well, I think, um, you know, you, you, you have ideas for how an institution will evolve and what people may want. We certainly have always been conscious of what, what, what people want in, in, in experiences, and that's why we do, we have a variety of different experiences here, which we embraced over time, both in terms of program and now in terms of a physical experience. Um, and it is, it gives me, you know, I hate, hate to say it, I mean, it's so obvious, but great joy. What else? To see um, people walk into the terraces and see the water as they've gone through the, the Ando building, now looking at, at the 120 acres and feel totally happy that they've kind of arrived. They've arrived at a place where they can have art but don't have to have it immediately. <laughs> they've arrived at a place where they can shop for a bit take f food for a bit, walk for a bit, and then have art, and then they can come back the next day if they don't have, have, have you know, want to have it all um, today at one time. I think that's, um, I think that's something we, uh, we plan for, but you often plan for things that don't actually transpire. And we, uh, it, it's particularly noticeable this summer, the, the, the happiness, because the number of people coming for Van Gogh. Uh, and but I think it will happen, frankly, with a lot of our exhibitions at times future, whether it brings exactly the number of people or not. Uh, people will uh, see the Clark as part of this special um, non-urban art experience where nature and art can be embraced in a in an atmosphere of of comfort and ease without pressure to see uh, everything everything. Uh, Immediately, immediately. <laughs> Let's talk about limits for a moment. Um, wandering the grounds here, you could certainly imagine uh, a hell of a pig roast. And the Brooklyn Museum is doing a sneaker show, very popular this year. What won't you do here at the Clark? <laughs> well, listen, I'm, um, I'm, I'm leaving the Clark and very, very happy. <laughs> and, um, and I've said uh, there are a few, a few trustees here. And they, they've heard this so often that they're exhausted with it that I'm going to sit there being surprised at what, what, what happens at the Clark in the future. I think we, we've left a foundation from which people can do a variety of, a variety of different kinds of things. I think one of the things that, uh, that you get as a teacher of museums and, and, and art, and as I am, uh, as opposed to ju just a museum director, is that you've watched institutions develop over time and you see programs changing. And, you can't hold on to specific ideas of what you think is good. Um, um, we've done some good things. Uh, the, re the only good thing that we've re done, though, in terms of programs future is to pro uh, provide an infrastructure that allows for, uh, for a changing program. And whatever that changing program might be, I'm sure the, um, the, the curators and directors of the future will adapt the institution for that program, and that program will r relate to certain audience needs and, and uh, desires. And if it's sneakers, you know, so be it. So I, 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 don't, I, I, I don't have an opinion. Uh, but, but I have to say that in terms of times past, um, we've been able, I think well, one of the things I'm proud of for the moment in time in which I worked was to, um, to provide a series of programs going that related to children uh, in ways that are parallel to sneakers, even though it might be a one-day thing. Boots here we, we, we can do one-day things. Yeah. We had a family day here a year, uh, a week or so ago, with you know 5,300 people doing you know sneaker-like events all, all around the campus. Uh, and then we also, at the same time, have a research and academic program where scholars come here from anywhere from a month to a year to work in our library, which is one of the largest uh, art history libraries in, in, in the country. And I think that that range of activities, be able to orchestrate that range of activities that include things like Van Gogh but are not driven only by Van Gogh, is something that we are very proud of. And uh, I think we've been rather, we're, we're, if not unique, there are only a very few institutions in the country, the Getty, the National Gallery, that, that range to this separate uh, institute for scholarship about art that's not necessarily about the objects themselves. It's about all the ideas of art and how they interact with the world. Uh, that's something that we do at the Clark, uh, and we do it while still having um, you know, crazy people uh, f f f f 5,000 people, you know, coming on a family day. That range is what we're, we're proud of. 
Let's talk for a minute about uh, the nature and you know the nature framing of the Van Gogh exhibit. Uh, the the impressionists were radicals, um, and as you see here with the Whistler, the the idea of experimentation with color and arrangement as as an abstraction versus realism, and you know the influence of Japanese art at the time um, was a real swirl of of what was going on and. Van Gogh comes to the Impressionists very much as a student, um, and yet, you know, even though we associate nature and art with something Aristotle talked a lot about in very sort of classical terms, um, you, you begin to see the Impressionists in a very different new way. And, and I want to read a, a, a bit of Yeats here, a poem that I think really speaks to me about this tension and fabulous relationship between nature and, and art. And you know, one doesn't have to be a representation of the other. And, and the fact that it's kind of open-ended is, is what's wonderful about it. Everything that man esteems endures a moment or a day. Love's pleasure drives his love away. The painter's brush consumes his dreams. The herald's cry, the soldier's tread, exhaust his glory and his might. Whatever flames upon the night man's own resinous heart has fed. So the, the idea that it is our choices as artists and as humans, not our imitation, that we come to see as art and we come to celebrate as art. And that, you know, in many ways, for all of the torturous descriptions of Van Gogh, you know, as a personality, um, you see that. You see him yeah, you finding see, peace yeah. in nature. Peace, I'm not so sure, but for yeah, certainly, yeah. I mean, you know, certainly a subject matter. Yeah. Certainly seeking a subject matter. But let me just deal with that in two ways. You you mentioned Whistler at first, and just to say, uh, I think one of the interesting things of this show is that um, uh, the the um, the way in which we show it in, in a in, in a segment of the show that that, that examines the um, the influence of Whistler's mother in 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 ages in ages future, the great trip of the Whistler's mother in the 1930s, uh, which was inspired by Alfred Barr, the then director of the, the, the Museum of Modern Art, to relate it to Mondrian, to see that gray and white as just a series of abstractions. I think that's a very interesting thing. And, and it, while it's not exactly what you were asking, but, uh, but the fact that you, you take basically two, two colors, of variations of two colors with all of its uh, you know subtleties of of, of grays and, and and whites and and with a figure, but actually a, a, as an abstract formal element, it's something that removes it from what it is as a piece of realism into something that is a formal element of art. Now the uh, now now more to your uh, to your question of Van Gogh. Um, what, what I found fascinating about this show, I wasn't the curator for it, it was Richard Kendall, a person along with a couple of the curators from the Van Gogh Museum, but what, what they convinced me about uh, when they uh, were presenting the show to me, because you know, they, I wasn't convinced that there needed to be another Van Gogh show, there's so many. Um, and uh, they convinced me with their words, but I certainly saw as I looked at the show when it was finally up, and, and I didn't see a whole lot of it in between. I trusted them, they did it, I, I wasn't really involved. But you know, the early works that look like engravings where he was just passionate, they're, they're all the d diary entries about his passion for nature, his interest in botany, insects, all elements, and then these incredible little drawings that look like engravings in which he focuses with little um, brush, uh, hand-held hand strokes, not, not at that point brush strokes, because he was only working with, uh, with graphite, but, but taking that notion of, 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 of strokes and making it into um, pattern, uh, and that went beyond the, the natural object that he was um, uh, surveying at that moment in time, which was uh, swamp ponds and things like that. But that, that element of sort of belief in nature and wanting to describe it in, in his nervous, um, uh, touch-like way, touch way, that then gets translated, uh, in your point, when he goes to uh, Paris to learn the Impressionists, then to uh, the south of France in Arles, where he's actually seeing light, where, and where he becomes, in the context of those last two years of extraordinary activity, the um, this sort of um, 
you know, sort of neurotic, crazed uh, desire to, uh, to paint everything in that same fashion, but with these little strokes, the same strokes, but now in big brush and with bright color and looking uh, slightly you know, nervous-like, if you will, uh, when he was in the um, the asylum in Saint Remy, I think this is uh, this is an it, it's amazing to see, and I think it comes through in this show um, very uh, very expressively uh, in a way that you it couldn't have been done if you were to combine the still life paintings and the portrait paintings. But here, just looking at his interest in nature, you could see. And looking at it in terms of chronology and ge geography as he moved from one place to another over time, you would actually see him develop as an artist in, in a very coherent way. Um, and one of the, uh, the great successes of this show is that it's both thematically driven, it's driven with the, the idea of nature, but by keeping it as a chronological show and a, a show that evolves in terms of the, his, uh, his different um, uh, locations uh, o over time, you actually see see him develop a, a, as an artist. So it's both a theme show uh, as well as what we call a monographic show, a show about his life. So you feel satisfied mm -hmm. that you've both seen seen his passion to one aspect of his his subject matter, but see it over time. So you're not unhappy that you're, you haven't seen uh, some of the great uh, you know, self-portraits, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a very uh, successful show, show that way, taking a, um, a focused theme and making it feel like you've completely um, exposed, dealt with, um, communicated with the, the artist. How much of uh, the demands on a collection like this, which, ha which has a lot of tradition, is there to people who want to come back and see things in the rooms that they remember when they were children, when they came to the It's a good one, yeah. Um, you know, the, that, that, those silvers that were over there in the corner, where did they go, or something like that? Well, I think all of us in, uh, uh, in, in, in our kinds of institutions, especially ones where people visit once a year, the once every couple of years because it's a summertime visit, uh, and then uh, museums that, um, that still give the flavor of being a private collection. Uh, where things don't change, uh, uh, confront that uh, that reality, um, and, and it's actually one of the reasons why we um, asked Annabelle Seldorf to do the renovations of the 55 building, never forgetting that building's core um, uh, spirit, shall we say? Um, I will say that um, uh, in the last couple of years since it's opened, we don't get as many questions about that because they've assumed change in light of the renovation. But it did; it would come up in times past, those onions that were always on that wall. Why, are they, why have you moved them this year? Where is it? But that, that's, the, that's the nicest. Yeah. We, we love to answer those kinds of questions because you're answering uh, people who are really committed uh, to the institution and, 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 and what it means to them. And part um, of the art is where it is. Where it is. Place. It's part I mean, of the context. Is, it's then, yeah, it's that. what makes this, these grounds so yeah, absolutely. beautiful. Absolutely. It's the sense of, you the sense of place. No question. Um, so um, what do you like to visit that are institutions that have a, a, a broad following that aren't art institutions? Um, do you have a favorite roller coaster at Six Flags, for example? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I was all prepared for what, what book you've read lately, but I'm not going to do that yeah. one. Uh, and, um, and you know, I'm such a I'm such a bore that I probably only. Well, you've, you've seen zoos, right? You've done. Yeah, I do. What? Well, well, the museum is a zoo. <laughs> there, see that? See that? That's a price of admission. Yeah, well, the museum. The museum is a zoo. Well, I mean, it's that's just like, a, that's bad. It's a collection of the you yeah. know the special things, but you know, the, 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 there's no question about that. I mean, they're they're part of the same 19th century attempt to to, to categorize and order and and uh, give examples of. Um, I have to say that uh, if I do uh, go to institutions that are not art-centric, it are natural history museums that have not changed since the late 19th century. Now, there are a few in the world. I won't, uh, won't bore you with their names, but uh, that's because I'm kind of an institutional historian, and that's, that's something that people are really not very interested in, the history of 
history of institutions, but I happen to be, because I, I see them as, uh, you know, what we do in our courses here is to talk, to make people feel comfortable, make the young kids feel comfortable with, with institutional change by having watched those changes over time and those, those institutions ha 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 having su survived. So, so the, for, for people like me, the weird people who actually li who like to go to places that haven't changed at moments in time, you actually walk into history. So I actually like going into the Garden Museum to see how it's never changed because we're going into you know, the mentality of a 1903 um, a special Victorian lady. I was one who didn't want the Barnes to leave uh, Marion, Pennsylvania. I mean, I'm just a person like that, but it's not necessarily that I'm right. It's just that I like, I like that kind of... I think we, we have enough institutions in the world to allow certain places never to evolve, Al although you don't want that... Uh, that place to be your own. <laughs> you wanted to be somebody else. <laughs> so, you, so you really, you really hate the designated hitter rule. In <laughs> All right. There so, um, two two more questions, then we'll open it up uh, for the audience here. Yeah. Um, uh, first, um, the. Uh, All right. What what book? No, no. <laughs> and that that was. You're going to retire. Some, some boring piece of nonfiction. Yes. Uh, You're going to retire. Uh, yeah. Are you serious about that? Yeah. What are you do? I mean, re retirement. I mean, uh, Take a what, what, what the terrible, <laughs> terrible thing about retirement that you can tell people how old you are it doesn't make any difference. They still want to ask what you're going to do. Uh, <laughs> you're not allowed to retire anymore. Um, uh, there are things that I'm going to do, but I mean, is, is it all that interesting? I'm still teaching at Williams. I'm on a few boards. I've agreed to join a couple of more. Um, there are projects, Good. writing projects, nice. that I will not tell you about because okay. what happens if they don't occur? <laughs> I will never, I, being a fellow author, I will never ask you about a work in progress because for I, that precise well, reason. My, my great fear is that I'll, I'll, I'll plan on doing it and I do plan on doing it and then all of a sudden it won't be good enough and I won't actually publish it, but anyway. But, but the plans are there. And uh, are you actually a football fan, or was that just a stunt? Uh, that, that, that was a stunt. That was a stunt. Uh, that was, <laughs> we're, we're, we're all football fans in, in, in New England, but that, that was a stunt. Yes. Um, and uh, the conservation, which we haven't talked about at all, the conservation function here that, that you do, how much, uh, how much do you have to be up on the technology of yeah. art conservation? Let, let me just say that. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because it's something, uh, given the, uh, the audience of public radio here, it's something that people ought to know about. We, we house on our campus, in fact, in this room next door, uh, the Williamstown Art Conservation Center. And we're, it's, it's an independent board of trustees and an independent organization. We built the building for them because we loved having them here. Uh, but we actually, uh, and we inspired their coming in the 90s when NEA was giving money for SAME and all the rest, but they are an independent organization that, 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 um, that cares for, restores the objects of 50 member institutions all around the Northeast, uh, and they are all, all the museums of Maine, uh, many museums in New England as well as New York and uh, Northwestern uh, Pennsylvania, institutions so small that they don't have conservation centers themselves, but they range from the Portland Museum of Art to the Courier Gallery in Manchester to Bates College and Colbeach College and um, da da da. It keeps on going. They give, uh, they are members for $5,000 a year of the conservation center, and then they do work uh, that would be at least that amount of money or more a year uh, in, in our center. Well, what, what, um, what it means for the Clark is that. Our students, as well as our staff, are able to see and engage with a vari wide variety of objects, ma many, uh, many more than we uh, could ever um, uh, uh, present to students ourselves. It means there are 12 uh, serious conservators on staff uh, there, and we don't pay for them the, uh, ourselves, and, and we use their services. But, uh, but it's, a very, it's both a, a, an advantage for the Clark, which is the reason why we, uh, we built the building to keep them here, but, but it's a very special um, uh, institution for, for arts organizations in uh, the region which, uh, which NPR is, uh, is addressing. Now, 
um, your question about technology, it is an ever uh, evolving field. And I would say that while there's uh, advanced uh, technological um, um, uh, engagement in this particular lab, you would go to certain, certain other labs around the country for certain kinds of uh, problems. We do have um, uh, specialized areas here, but there are things, particularly in 20th century things, curiously, uh, curiously enough, uh, the, the edge in terms of conservation in our time is the middle and latter part of the 20th century where artists were working with materials that are so often so fragile and sort of quote unquote the wrong materials if you were to think about their, their lasting nature. And uh, these kinds of problems often require uh, specialist uh, conservation labs around the country. Uh, so, so there is an issue of uh, technology, uh, only some of which we address here. And the technology associated with conservation of 19th century paintings is completely different than that yes. for 20th century paintings. Yes. Of course, we have nothing to do with the Jeff Koons or Damien Hirst. Which are not needing of, uh, but, but Damien Hirst, would say but Damien Hirst will, will, will need some soon. Yeah, so, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Jeff Koons may, may be less so. Yes. <laughs> um, I've um, got a little uh, Yates uh, word here that addresses the issue of retirement and the sense oh, of God. youth and age. <laughs> And, um, and, and which motivates uh, my final question, which is just what has this, this great gift that you've given to all of us and this gift that was given to you to have had this sustained period of work here in this institution with this community that you've enlarged to so many places around the world. Um, Yates writes about youth and age in this fragment. Much did I rage when young, being by the world oppressed, but now with flattering tongue, it speeds the parting guest. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Conforti, what does this moment mean to you looking back and forward? Well, you know, I thought you might have a version of this. So I, um, I was thinking as I was sitting here before, because people always ask me questions about retirement. It's so boring. But you are not boring, and therefore I'll give you the following answer. There was a, um, you know, there's a moment in my life, there, there are a couple of moments in my life that I remember as being so, um, so, so fortunate. One was leaving London in the uh, circa 1969-1970 after my year at Sotheby's, very young, 23 years old, and uh, going off to, uh, to work in New York. Um, but remembering that it was just one of the best uh, periods of my life where I was ex exposed to a European life, friends, uh, the activity of the, the, the art market in London that got, got me, by the way, uh, an experience that is invaluable to my um, my uh, professional uh, to, to my uh, professional life later on as a director in ways that we we don't have time for. But I thought of it. I thought very consciously. This is such a wonderful year, and that's how I feel now. Uh, this has been. What more is there to do? It's not for me to do. There's more to do, but somebody else is going to do it, and I feel very complete having. Uh, been given the great opportunity here, wonderful community my children are raised, um, and, uh, and the institute has evolved programmatically, the building. Um, there is nothing left for me to do. And, uh, and, but that doesn't mean there isn't anything for the institution to do. There's just nothing left for me to do in it. So you leave with an incredible sense of peace. Does that sound too nice? It's a beautiful, it's very sweet. nice. And let me just add to it for your. Do you believe list, it? It's true, years, but never people do believe don't believe it. things like I that. Do believe it. <laughs> for your bucket list, I would add bungee jumping. <laughs> we tried that in South Africa, but uh, my my kids did it in April, but I wouldn't go down. Not skydiving. I I, ref I refuse to do Lots the bungee. Lots of here. Yeah, I refuse to do the bungee jump. Okay. Don't ever be photographed in a water. What? Park, I would no, try. listen. What we're doing. <laughs> there is. Um, we're in the, all I can talk about is the immediate, and we've got this wonderful uh, moment at the end of the month when I retire where I go, I'm off to the Hermitage for an advisory committee there. Then my wife and I meet in Venice. Oh. And then we go to our little house in Tuscany, and then we go to the American Academy in Rome for three weeks where I was a fellow. Then we're off to France for two weeks. I just, that's all I'm looking at, great food. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to substitute your water park. Uh, 
that, that's not looking for a lot of sympathy, are you? you no, know? but after that, it's you know, it's you know, renovating the small house next door and all that sort of shit. But this, this is uh, this is going to be a, a nice, nice transition into. But but I think more. Um, my the only thing I aspire to be is since you moved me to say something, water park. I want to I want to be Anthony Bourdain. Ah. We made some news here. That's, that's my desire. I mean, I do it in more conventional places. I mean, whether I could really take all that, that street food. But if I were to plan, uh, you know, the, the life outside of the, uh, the various you know, sort of obligations I've given myself in the course of the next years, it would definitely be, be Anthony Bourdain. I, I so the so maybe show right now. Nasty yeah, Bits with Michael Conforti. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, we have time. We have time for we have time for a couple of questions before we uh, 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 go to the reception. Uh, raise your hands. We'll get a microphone to you. Um, I'm sure I didn't take somebody's water park question here. There we go. Um, I know that Clark does a lot with school groups, wonderful family days. Do you see this as um, evolving into a uh, into a younger audience for art, or do you find that museums, like classical concerts, also tend to get mostly people who are elderly? Um, I'm staring at you because how, how far do we want to go with the answer to this question? It's something we obviously think about an awful lot. Um, and let me take it in bits. The things you haven't actually asked, but I would like to observe on, uh, as I also ho hopefully ask your, your, uh, answer your question. Uh, one thing I, I would sort of observe on is that, I, and I often talk about this with Ella Baff and theater colleagues here, how lucky we are in art museums that we don't have empty seats. We, we, em, empty galleries are look, look on as a, as a refuge, empty seats are a problem, you know. So we're, we don't have the level of pressure of the I mean, performing arts. The issue of gray is something that is um, probably more significant in, in uh, performing arts uh, centers than us. It's not as though we don't have gray, but, um, uh, but uh, we, we're a little less expensive. Uh, we can do programs that can engage younger people and do them more cheaply if we wanted to advance audience in general. I, I would, thirdly, I would just observe that I, 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 uh, I'm, I find this is a little outside of the um, of uh, you know politically accept, uh, correct uh, answer. Um, there are many more grays, and and people are going to have to address the the needs of grays. I have no problem with the Clark being a, a place where where people who are gray are very happy happy to be because there are more and more of them, and more and more people who 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 want to be part of our, our experience. But, um, but there is no question, and, and it's, it's a bigger issue, I would think, for in urban audiences than us, is that you, you make a judgment of, your, of the, the liveliness of your, your, your program in relationship to uh, the range of audiences of your, um, uh, in, in terms of age. Um, I, I, we do many things for many people. We will continue to work hard at, at bringing in uh, young, uh, younger people. I think we simply have to, to recognize, both as a profession as well, but particularly as an organization in the Berkshires, that, um, uh, that uh, there is a, a leisure time factor that is an issue. There is a, a type of art uh, issue that may, may not always be engaging to, to, to to everyone, uh, i.e., the, the the older works of art sometimes appeal to, to older audiences. Well, one of the things that I am I was very happy to be able to accomplish in my time is a scale of special exhibition gallery that is open-ended enough so that we could do many different kinds of programs. Now, uh, in the older uh, pro uh, galleries that we had for temporary exhibitions. It could only serve impressionist uh, paintings and things of an earlier type, but all, always a smaller scale. And, uh, and I know that impressionism is dying as a, uh, an interest of, uh, of audiences. Yes, you may not know, but it is. And uh, the next generation is going to be much more interested in, in 20th century art as they are now. So we, we feel very happy that we have, have the scale of galleries that could go well beyond 
what I, I, I've ever imagined and what we were, were able to accomplish at the opening in uh, last year, which was a show of mid uh, 20th century abstraction, which we could not have done in, in our older galleries. I think our new galleries allow us to address programmatically a younger audience, and that could be for sneakers, or it could be for abstraction, or it Chinese could be, bronzes. or Chinese bronze, or whatever it might be, so that that the the people programming for the future can adapt more uh, more subtly. So I say that that one should uh, one should not keep put their head head in the sands regarding age, but one should not um, uh, measure oneself entirely on the basis of the age of one one's audience, because. Certainly in the Berkshires, it happens to be a very expensive uh, place to be in terms of uh, a, a, a summertime center. Uh, and it's a place without beaches. Uh, it is a place where older people feel comfortable. And, and I think that's it's not, it's not a horrible thing. And there may, and there may be more, more older people in the future than, than there are now. Um, so a, a comment, but, but, but a good question. One last question. Yeah. Um, Michael, can you give us an example of a, an experience that you had when you saw a piece of art for the first time, you experienced it for the first time, and you had an unexpected emotional reaction to it? I, I, Jesus, there were many examples of that, but one I'd like, I'll just relate here, um, because it relates to, to something that, that, is, um, that has life in the Berkshires at the moment. And it was my first time seeing Anselm Kiefer at the um, at Documenta in Kassel in 1982. He was already a, a little bit of a recognized artist in the late 70s um, uh, in Germany, but I had never seen his works before. And I came back from that um, Documenta and got encouraged uh, somebody to buy a book from Marion Goodman, still a good friend, who was actually the dealer for um, for Thomas Schutte, who we see here. But um, and I got uh, Anne Anne Dayton, a good uh, the daughter of a patron in, in Minneapolis, uh, to buy uh, an Anselm Kiefer book, uh, even though we didn't have any um, contemporary art at the uh, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts and the rest. But uh, I always believed in his art. Now I've watched his career over time. I was at his. Uh, the big monographic show that, that he had, the opening of the big monographic show he had at, uh, at the Royal Academy this past year. But as you know, there's a, there's a wonderful group of Anselm Kiefer's, uh, sort of mid, uh, later uh, Anselm Kiefer's, but still give, um, put on view from the Hall Foundation, not, now at Masmoka. So he's an artist who continues to be vibrant. Uh, he continues to be collected. We see him, his work here in the Berkshires. But, but it is an experience I, I remember, and there, there are many such, and I'm sure all of you have such. The, the time that a, a, a work of art shocks you is a time that you should take very seriously, because um, rather than soothing you, shocking you might mean it's important. <laughs> I want to thank all of you for being here on behalf of New England Public Radio, and thank Michael Conforti and your staff for hosting us. And John Hockenberry will keep listening to you on The Takeaway. And I hope you'll all join us on the terrace for a small reception. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you both so very much. Thank you. Thank you.